Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. My name is Rhea. Um, I am seven years old. I live in Northampton. And when I feel included, I feel really happy and glad and I feel really good. And when I feel excluded, I feel a little bad and left out and I feel a little sad. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Elizabeth Solomon. Hey, Dan. Hey, Liz. Hey, Hanuman. Hi, Liz. Hi, Hanuman. Hi, Dan. Today, we're digging into the second act of our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging theme and investigating how the theory that Madupe Ekinola shared with us in part one can be applied to the organizational or corporate system. That's right, Hanuman. And I had the pleasure for today's episode of speaking to two colleagues from the Great Place to Work Institute, the Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer, Tony Bond, and their Head of Data Science and Innovation, Marcus Erb. The Great Place to Work Institute for those that don't know, is the consultancy and research institute behind Fortune's 100 Best Places to Work list. They use a rigorous methodology to gather and evaluate employee feedback and recognize companies who've built high trust, high performance cultures, which emphasize diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. One of the themes that you'll hear come out of this conversation is that organizations that practice DEIB are also likely led by emotionally intelligent leaders. And Dan, I'm wondering if you can kick us off here by speaking a little bit about what empathy has to do with strong leadership and today's topic. Well, you know, there are three kinds of empathy. One is cognitive understanding how people see things, the uh, way they slice reality, the terms they use. This helps you be a very effective communicator. Then there's emotional empathy, where you feel what the other person feels. It's an emotional bond between two people. Uh, And both of those are really, really important. But the third, I think, is at play here. The third is called empathic concern or caring. It's like a parent's love for a child. You really care about the person you're tuning into. And I think it's there that you get action in diversity and equity and Uh, inclusion and belonging. 
Uh, it's because the leader, the emotionally intelligent leader, actually cares about the person they're tuning into. I think what's so interesting about what the Great Place to Work Institute does is that they collect all of these um, employee comments, right? And, and one of the things you'll hear in this interview is that leaders don't always know until they know, right? I mean, one of the greatest ways to build awareness is through feedback. And so I imagine, you know, to be a leader and to see employee comments that um, are illuminating any gaps in diversity, equity, and inclusion, well, you know, there's, there's a way in which that could feel really daunting. Um, it also offers the opportunity for a leader to really tune in and, and practice all those levels of empathy. I've been a leader in an organization that did none of this, like explicitly had a very difficult time hearing the, uh, the employees and the, the people who are actually doing the work. And I watched as that organization just fell apart from not responding to itself. Uh, to its own concerns, the concerns of, it's like having a, a arm or a hand that uh, is gangrenous and not doing anything about it because you're not listening to the pain and the place falls apart eventually. Yeah, I, I would add too that there's other reasons that, you know, I think it's not just about ignoring the pain, but I know if a lot of my coaching clients um, who have a level of awareness about how inequity is playing out within their organization, right? Who might be sitting in a meeting and are noticing that all the attention goes to a particular person or that when the one woman in the room goes to speak, all of a sudden people speak over her, right? Even for some of my clients who notice these things, the question then becomes, how do I say something? And I think this gets back to what is what is our comfort, right? Both as individuals and, and what is the organization's comfort with talking about issues, with addressing behaviors as they arise. Um, and this is some of the stuff that we get into in our interview today. Let's listen to what the Great Place to Work Institute team has to say. Welcome to First Person Plural. I am so excited to be here today with Tony Bond and Marcus Erb from the Great Place to Work Institute. I'll just kick off by saying that for me personally, this is a highlight moment. Um, the Great Place to Work Institute and Dan Goldman have been two of the most sort of influential thinkers, organizations, people within my career. And so um, to have you here today, Tony and Marcus, talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, workplace culture, leadership is, is truly an honor. Welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Excited to be here. So as we get started, I would just love to have one of you give our listeners a little bit of context about the Great Place to Work Institute and what it is that the Institute does. I'll take a stab at that. I've been here a little bit longer than Tony. But, so, <laughs> so I've been working with Great Place to Work now for nearly two decades. Um, and so what the company is focused on is helping companies transform and become a great place to work for all. 
Um, so we really look at you know, the employee experience as the center of that. Um, we help celebrate companies that are really excellent by their employees' eyes, celebrating them by calling them out as best workplaces to work for, uh, or even calling them out as certified great places to work. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time studying workplaces, understanding what employees are experiencing there so that we can find the best ones, celebrate them, and hopefully inspire more companies to become that because it's better for the people and better for their businesses. Tony, do you have anything to add to that? I'll just add, yeah, Marcus has been here longer, but I would say the idea to start the Great Place to Work uh, organization was brilliant and a way ahead of its time. If you think in terms of how much conversation today is around workplace culture and to know that you had an organization that over 30 years ago was front and center around this conversation, it's just really exciting. So it's a great, great place to work. That's great. I'd actually love if you guys wanted to tell our listeners a little bit about how the Great Place to Work Institute started, because I do think it's a pretty fascinating story. I'm going to let Marcus continue that because he was here <laughs> close to the origin, and so he'll have better insight. By the end of this, people are going to think I'm 173 years old. Um, the, the company started a long time ago based on an idea of what if there are best workplaces? Um, this was at the time, this was in the early 80s, uh, people didn't actually think this was a possibility. Um, and why would you even be good to your workers? This was in the middle of quite a bit of labor strife. Um, and some publishers realized, well, maybe there's an angle here to actually talk about the companies that are doing great or doing well. Um, and so our, 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 our founders uh, went out um, and actually started to do some research, to find out, well, are there best workplaces? Um, what do the great ones look like? Um, they were very dubious about this even being possible. The legend has it that they actually wanted to write a story about the worst companies to work for because it would be easier. Um, fortunately, some lawyers got involved and the word liability was thrown around and, and understood. And so we didn't go down that path. Um, and even more amazingly, we found there were great workplaces um, you know, 40 years ago that were doing great things for their employees and doing really well for their employees. So that led us down to a path of understanding, well, why, how, what, what is this great workplace doing um, that other companies aren't doing? Uh, what's their secret sauce? And as people studied and talked to us and we talked to employees to really understand, we thought we might find in, during that time, like a formula, a recipe of programs and practices you could bring them together and, and create a great workplace, right? If you set the right pay level, you have the right perks at your office, um, you're gonna have a great workplace. And what we actually found was that it, was, it wasn't about that. It was also about the relationships at work, the relationships people had with their, their company, their managers, with their coworkers, and with their work, the purpose they found, the community they found. Um, those things were what determined whether or not it was a great place to work. Um, and so in terms of our evolution, once we found that idea and started to talk about that idea even more, um, we got involved in, in helping companies understand where they were. Um, using a survey that we call the Trust Index so that we can help understand uh, what employees' experiences really are and benchmark them, and also use that information to start to create best workplace lists. Um, so most famously in the United States, we're known for the 100 best places to work for, which we publish annually in Fortune, and I, I get the math a little bit wrong, but I think we're up to the 25th year this year, coming up in 2022. Um, so we've been doing that work there um, since we started doing that work 25 years ago. We also do it, uh, similar work across the globe. Um, we also celebrate best workplaces now in a much more diverse way where we also look at best workplaces um, by age, best workplaces for women, best workplaces by different industry. Um, really what we've seen is that, you know, 40 years ago, nobody was even thinking about it. 
Uh, 25 years ago, it was hard to find 100. Now we have a lot of companies really committed to workplace culture and realizing the business benefits of treating their employees better. Thank you for that, Marcus. And I'll just add to that, that I've always been struck that um, the founders were journalists. And I just think that's meaningful to mention because they came in um, with a real desire to get to get at the truth, right? And to look at the whole story. And so that sort of spirit of the work has has continued. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit, just tell us what are, what are your distinct roles within GPTW? So my official title is Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity and Innovation Officer. And that encompasses a lot of things, but a lot of the work is around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Uh, working in partnership with Marcus on some of the research uh, speaking to groups, organizations around what it means to have a diverse, inclusive, and belonging culture, as well as uh, doing some advisory work for some of our larger clients. And so most of my time is spent in that space. Um, and I'm on my ninth year at Great Place to Work now. Well, my role is the VP of Data Science and Innovation, uh, which is a really cool job because I get to study people and use math. Um, two things I love and am passionate about. Um, I use those two things to sit and study the millions of surveys we get a year to better understand what's happening in the world um, for employees and what companies can do to keep getting better. Um, so I feel very lucky. Um, the one math thing I'm not good at is that I originally thought I would be with Great Place to Work for two years when I joined. Uh, which at the time in my youth seemed like a really long time. And now 20 years later, almost, it's, I realized that was one prediction I missed, um, but thankful I did. I come from a corporate finance background. So math has been a big part of my journey before Great Place to Work. And my goal was five years, Marcus, more than yours, two years. And so five has <laughs> but, become almost 10 and, and it's growing. But you're pointed to something, which something has kept you at Great Place to Work. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what has kept you there. I'm really drawn to the mission because I believe that it's a worthwhile mission. And so I think that was, that's what pulled us all to Great Place to Work. But what keeps me there is this uh, unbelievable culture that we've built at Great Place to Work, being able to collaborate with people like Marcus and other teammates, and also realizing that people rely on us in a way that's really important to individuals, important to organizations, important to society. So it just this opportunity to have a significant impact on lives mm -hmm. is really what keeps me a great place to work. Yeah, my, my story is different path than Tony, but same reasons. Uh, the, the mission was what originally got me to change. My work before Great Place to Work was similar, but as soon as I realized, oh, I could put that work to making the world better in a mm -hmm. way that was really impactful to a lot of people, uh, I was just drawn to it like a moth uh, and have been sticking around because the other people that are drawn to that work, like Tony, like, like you, Liz, um, are just really dedicated, smart, passionate people um, that are wonderful to work with and create a sense of community around this, this, this purpose that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and that sense of purpose is, you know, the kind of thing that I, I know from our data and our research and work with other organizations, it's a lot more uh, difficult to find than unfortunately it, it should be out there. So I feel very fortunate to, to have that here. Yeah, I've always felt I'm like, if you can change an organization, you're changing the lives of millions and billions of people, actually. Um, and the impact is so huge. And just so we can get on the same page, and Tony, you mentioned this word belonging. And I know that at Great Place to Work Institute and in our previous conversations, you've referred to DEI, not just as DEI, but as DEIB. And I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about um, what that B 
stands for, um, not just the word belonging, but what does that mean to <laughs> Great Place to Work Institute? And how do you understand yeah. that? Yeah, it's a great question. The letters, we're adding more and more as we go along. But for me, the simple way to look at it is, uh, you know, we started with uh, diversity and inclusion, but I feel like the DE piece is more around numbers, you know, representation, uh, fairness and, and equality and, and income and things of that nature. The IB for me, the inclusion and belonging is more of a mindset. It's a mindset for not only leaders, but also individuals. And so Belonging really measures, in my opinion, and I think we share this, a great place to work. Um, is my work, not only my work valued, but do I feel valued as an individual? Because I can be included in things, but still not have a sense of being valued, being actually a part of it. And so that's what we're trying to capture from the B, is to what extent do you feel like, not only are you included, but you feel like your work, as well as you as an individual and all the things you bring to the organization, is valued and if those pieces come together it creates the, you know the type of culture that we want to foster within organizations marcus uh you've done a lot of research around the b as well feel free to add some more perspectives i think you captured it really well tony it's that idea i think a lot of organizations when they work on this and work on deib they, they do start with those numbers and those are a great place to start really important place but once you have the numbers, once you have that collection of talent together, are they really unleashing their full potential or not? And that's where belonging comes in. Um, if you've got a true sense of belonging where people feel, as Tony described, that uh, their ability to bring their authentic self, um, that unique perspective, that knowledge, that insight, they're more able to contribute, but the organization is also better off because they're getting the value of those different perspectives and insights that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, if somebody has to come to work and feels included, but needs to assimilate, they're hiding part of their identity. Um, and that, that hiding piece is where people start to feel burnout. That's where people start to feel microaggressions. That's where people, um, you know, the experiences just lead to great talent coming in and it's kind of being a revolving door or a leaky bucket where they're kind of headed back out because they don't really find that true sense of belonging. You know, when I started working with um, Great Place to Work Institute, so that was, gosh, 15 years ago now, I guess I um, first started doing some research and evaluation work. And at that point, the model was very different. It didn't have this for all component, right? And so you know, we were looking at a lot of things like communication and training and development and hiring and onboarding and all of these elements that sort of make up what is the culture, what's happening internally. This shift to for all has been a huge change in the model and in how you conduct research. And I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about what was the impetus for adopting a for all model um, and how did that shift begin? I will share based on a story. It's almost like stories get better and better as time goes by. And so this is my <laughs> recollection of the story at the time, but I, I contribute a lot of it to Michael Bush, our CEO now, because I think when Michael came on board, there was a need to sort of refresh what it meant to be a great place to work, to change the narrative around what it meant to be a great place to work. And I remember being in a conference room, looking at all of the list of companies, all great companies, and Michael asking a question, do you know anyone who works there? And is it a great place to work for them? And so what we realized is that even in the best companies, we knew people who worked in these organizations who might say it wasn't a great place to work for them. So that was sort of the spirit behind it needs to be a great place to work for all. And with that change in the narrative, the change in the story of what it means to be a great place to work, 
let uh, Marcus and team to really kind of research how do we measure whether or not it's a great place to work for all. So it's become really the bread and butter of how we evaluate a great place to work. Yeah, it definitely is a credit to to Michael um, and coming in and kind of challenging us, you know, great place to work. We had challenged companies to get better and become best workplaces. And so to raise the bar even more um, at the time we did was uh, really important. Um, I remember the phrase is not that um, offensive for all, like that means you and me, it's everybody. So, but when we introduced it, companies actually did feel nervous about, well, what do you mean? You're going to actually consider everybody? Yeah, everybody. Mm-hmm. You mean everybody when you say for all? Yes, everybody. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and companies got nervous because they realized, I think some companies realized, well, we haven't been really doing that. That's been kind of the, you know, places that we haven't wanted people to look, but, you know, that's that's the thing that we need to look at. Um, and we frankly lost some companies who weren't that interested in having us look in that place. Um, Fortunately, it was a very small group. Um, and what's even more fortunate is we have a lot of companies that said, yeah, let's look there and let's mm-hmm. raise that bar and we'll go with you on that journey. So um, we're really happy that we stuck with it, that Michael kind of pointed us in that direction, that our customers came with us because um, we're seeing great progress and companies actually saying, oh, we really need to be great mm-hmm. for everybody, no matter who they are, what they do for the company, because otherwise we're not really a great workplace. Um, and it's kind of cool today. We're actually seeing companies from this moment five or six years ago where companies were kind of saying, eh, we don't know if we want to go that way. We actually have customers now challenging us to keep stretching, to stretch mm. the language we use to be more inclusive, to stretch the ideas that we're using to make sure that our definition of for all really is for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cool to see that, to be a part of that. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper there and um, because, you know, Great Place to Work Institute has always had questions of, you know, do you create a diverse and inclusive culture and and sort of how do the numbers shake out, right? So that's always been a part of the evaluation of a great workplace. But from an evaluation standpoint, once you adopted this for all model, we're really asking the question, is this a great workplace for every single person that works there, right? Which I mean, some of these companies have hundreds of thousands of employees. So that's a whole lot of people um, to create programs and policies that, that fit all of them. How did the evaluation change? How did the way that you look at data and the data you're collecting, what were some of the shifts there to be able to assess that? We kept some of the things we were originally looking at. So our methodology is rooted, and this is from the journalist roots, but we believe the employees first. We listen to them and what they tell us is sort of what we we use to evaluate a company. So if an employee says the company is a great place to work, it's a great place to work. If uh, your PR communication team says it's a great place to work, we're going to ask the employee. And so we still look at when employee surveys come in, um, is it overall a positive place? Is, are most employees consistently experiencing trust, purpose, community? Are they having those experiences at work? If so, great. When our evolution came, we started to look at, well, how consistent are those experiences? So if you're somebody who's working a frontline role, do you actually have those same experiences that somebody does in an executive role? What's the gap there? How consistent is that? We applied that to gender, to race, ethnicity, to age, um, to parental status, we have several different things that we actually look at, but we started to say, not only is it overall great, but is it great for everybody who's part of this organization, um, regardless of their role or regardless of their personal background. 
And that's the big shift in our, our, our methodology. We've changed other things where we've, the types of programs and practices that we're looking for, um, that continues to evolve, but really that employee experience, that was the big shift, looking at how consistent is it across these different um, groups of employees so we could really see that full picture. And I know that one of the things that GPTW has done really well is making the connection between a for-all culture and an innovative culture. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that and what the research has showed you. Mm, great question. Um, so for all cultures, um, we do see that they uh, are able to bring more of their talent together. We know that when you have that foundation of trust and pride and camaraderie, um, that allows people to come into something different. And when everybody's able to bring in that, we see higher levels of financial performance and higher levels of what we call innovation by all which is essentially this idea that employees are better able to bring their talents to work, better able to adapt, contribute to new ways of doing things, um, which as we've seen from the last two years, three years, like that's that pace and agility is really, really important. Um, so we're seeing continued things just um, recently because one anecdote, we see a lot of data. So one of the things that we saw was actually our for all cultures more resilient. Um, and the way we answered this question was to go back to our data that we looked at from the Great Recession. And we tried to find out, like, of all the companies that we had then, how did they perform financially during the Great Recession? And we were able to find that some did thrive, actually outperform what the market did, and that some did not, what we called flatline. Um, and when we looked and said, could we actually predict how a company did based on what their employees told us? We found out that we could. Uh, and what was most powerful part of the prediction was that for all component was actually wow. listening not to the overall results, not the overall group of employees, but employees who are typically marginalized employees, um, people of color, women, pe uh, people in hourly frontline roles. If you listen to those employees and looked at their experience, if they said their employer was a great place to work that included them, that treated them fairly, those companies thrived through the Great Recession where those results weren't as positive we saw that those companies didn't do so well during the Great Recession. So, you know, the, the evidence for being a for-all workplace just continues to grow. Um, and I think it's one where it's, you know, anytime you need to go find out some cause to go do this, there's ample evidence that uh, is out there. What you mentioned, Marcus, is one of the keys to our research. I mean, it not only shows you how people are experiencing the workplace, but they're also, these experiences have implications on business outcomes. And whether it's innovation, you know, eventually when we look at this whole ESG concept and environment, these great workplaces are going to be more likely to be the organizations that are going to do good in society and do good from an environmental perspective. So there's so many connections to business outcomes that comes from the, the data that, that's being collected. Yeah. Would you say that companies are surprised by that? I'm curious, Tony, when you're sort of out there in a consulting capacity, having these conversations with organizations, what are the elements of, of DEIB or before all culture that companies seem most surprised by? Yeah. I think there's still, even in great companies, there's this misconception that um, there's kind of a zero sum game when you are dealing with making things better for one population. But our research really you know, speaks against that because if you make it better for the marginalized, whatever group you wanna call it, uh, everyone's experience gets better. And so there's almost like this uh, mindset that something needs to be given up or it's a trade-off to do the mm. things that creates a great place to work for all. And it really isn't, but that shows up in different ways. Sometimes you have a little bit of a pushback from certain groups or certain groups aren't buying into it as well as you would want them to. 
So we have to be and be able to do a better job of demonstrating how building a for all culture truly means a for all for everyone. And it's possible to do that without anyone losing any ground along the way. I think this explains a little bit of the the pushback, this kind of zero sum thinking that you were talking about when you adopted this model. And I also know that when you started measuring organizations in that way, that the list rankings changed and these list rankings are, I know, are very important to these companies, you know, to secure a, a number one, number two, number three spot and to maintain that spot over a series of years um, is a huge accomplishment. I'm curious to hear um, examples of GPTW for all companies. Who out there right now would you say is doing this work really well? Um, and what are they focused on? Yeah, there are a lot that are doing well. I'll give a few, Marcus, you can add to it. Uh, some that come to mind is, you know, Hilton is one. So if you think in terms of what that industry went through uh, during this pandemic, it's been unbelievable how they've been able to build this flexible and caring culture. And they've sort of analyzed every step of the way with their teammates journey and really try to make it a caring culture. And I think that's been a big part of their ability to build back. I love how Dow, uh, if you think in terms of how they've created alignment from the very top of the organization and how all their leaders are totally aligned around this, how they've embodied the power of employee resource groups and gone beyond making those groups just groups where people are feeling good about each other, but being a true resource to the organization. So those are two that come to mind. I know that Cisco does amazing work. There's so many great examples. I'd hate to leave anyone out, but I think it really is the ability to embrace the contribution that everyone can bring to the organization. That's so important right now because leaders don't have all the answers. We've never been through anything like this before. Mm. And then also having that alignment, if it's not a shared aspiration from the very top through to all the leaders, it's not going to work. And so those are two companies I feel like that have done a great job that way. Yeah, Tony, you mentioned a couple of things that made me think of Cisco again. First, you said their name. Second, you <laughs> talked about that leaders haven't figured out all the answers. Um, and I think that's that's part of this journey, like to get better at this. This is not a zero sum, you've got the answer right or wrong. This is a continued journey to learn and get better and improve. Um, and I think Cisco's really demonstrated that willingness and bravery to kind of keep embracing this conversation, even when it gets tough. Um, you know, originally, it's before the murder of George Floyd and uh, the summer of 2020, uh, Cisco and its executives had all decided to read White Fragility um, and had realized this is something really important. We need to better understand this and let's go out and learn. Um, and they, you know, to their credit, learned in a way where they're not trying to burden uh, employees to kind of teach them their experiences. They went out and actively were curious and, and did this. Um, and they did create forums for employees to have conversations around the topics uh, after the murder of George Floyd to actually start to say, hey, we've got to talk about this. Let's open up some space to do it. Um, and the first one or two were rough, like you would expect. They're not easy conversations to have. They're not easy even for a company as sophisticated as Cisco. They, they were like, oh, how do we do this? Um, and, and as part of their journey, the, they realized there are some ways that they had to bring conversations together um, to teach people how to have these conversations. They actually came up with a kind of a color-coded system for what comments are okay, which comments express different opinions, uh, which comments express an attack, and you can say those, and, and just to help 
improve wow. everybody's capacity to embrace this conversation. And remember, they're doing this at scale. So this is tens of thousands of employees that they're trying to have this conversation with globally. Um, but they kept going. And I think, you know, for many organizations, when you hit that, when you get past making the first statement, and and get into that kind of nebulous space of what do I do next? Companies that show kind of that curiosity and willingness to continue to learn, that's really a key thing. And I, I know Cisco showed that as well. I hear so much in what you're saying. I mean, I hear just the the self-awareness of leaders, but also the, the self-awareness of an organization as an entity, the willingness to fail, the willingness to have conversations for which not everyone has the same language or, you know, the sort of same ideologies or upbringing, or not everyone's coming in with the same amount of education and information. And I think there's been a lot of um, conversations in the past year of is there a place for quote unquote political discussions in the workplace, right? And I've been fascinated by this because I think then we're, we first have to ask, what is a political conversation? And is DEIB a political conversation? Some organizations might say yes, some might say no. I'm, I'm curious if you two have anything to say about that. I, I would oh, oh. say, okay, go ahead, Marcus. Yeah, here go you go, because I know you... I want to I want to hear you've done some research on this and some data shows how it shows up from a, yeah. a political step perspective. So, yeah, I'll start there, but I definitely want to hear what you have to say, Tony, because you've got some interesting perspectives on on this. Um, you know, what, but what your question makes me think of, Liz, first is that this question of can politics be at work or not? Should we let it in or not? You don't have that control as a company. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, politics are at work already. Um, and that conversation is happening at work already, um, whether we like it or not. Uh, and so it's something to be prepared for, to create the space for, to, to acknowledge you can't um, ignore it. Um, and one of the things we've seen in our data is that this, without judgment, but just this word conservative. Um, when we look back at what employees were telling us five, six, seven years ago, the word conservative was used to describe kind of decision-making or companies or leaders that were risk adverse, right? It was kind of just used in a non-political ideology way, just conservative, risk adverse. Um, over the last several years though, it's now become an identity. I am conservative and I experienced this at work because of being conservative. And so that shift is there. Um, and I think what that symbolizes too is that, you know, one, that companies have to deal with this, but it's also the shift that political opinion has probably shifted mostly from political opinion to political identity. And so you can't totally detangle this idea of political identity from DEIB because that's part of it. And that's mm -hmm. either going to be what people need to express and bring their full potential, but it's also, as Tony was alluding to a little bit before, some of the potential headwinds you might be running into as well, some of the language and capacity you have to develop. Yeah, I totally agree. It almost feels like conflict arises when you give things labels, uh, conservative, liberal, whatever you want to do. And that's when conflict arises. And I think so it's very difficult to not have that come to the workplace because in many ways, the workplace is kind of a microcosm of society. So I think what the workplace can do is create a safe environment where you can have these conversations without judgment. And we've seen great examples of how that's happening. So it exists within the workplace, but the question becomes, what kind of an environment can leaders create so that we can have a safe place for people to have conversations and make meaning together without casting judgment on each other? Mm -hmm. And so. That, that's happening every single day. 
I think one of the arguments has been, oh, it's it takes time to do that. And that time distracts from the bottom line in some way, or it keeps us, you know, quote unquote, from being productive or being able to get things done when actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but your research has shown, oh, actually, the more you open up space for those authentic, real conversations to happen and for people to really bring all of themselves and speak about what is inevitably on their mind because it's happening in the in the world around us. Um, that that actually feeds into a healthier bottom line. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. One good piece of news from our data. I know another piece of this for leaders when you hear this, like uh, Tony's exactly right. Like as soon as you start to bring this up, there's tension there inherent in the conversation, but there is some good news in our data. I should air quote uh, or call that out for the, for the podcast. But the, what we found is that no matter your political opinion, you probably think your workplace sucks. So while you might feel divided from people with different political <laughs> beliefs, you can rally around. There's a way to make your workplace better. In fact, what we found was that 49% of people who, who said wow. they have a conservative beliefs um, experience a great workplace. And that's about the same number of people that have liberal beliefs, which is the number is 52% there. Um, so this idea of like separation, yes, labels can create that separation, but there is like some shared experience there, which is actually really powerful and speaks to what, you know, when you create that space, you could actually create a different conversation than many other places could. Um, so there, there is potential there. There is hope. Mm-hmm. Even though the number I just shared is like, yeah, most people think work sucks, but it's um, something <laughs> for us to work together on. Yeah, it's like misery loves company, right? Well, it also <laughs> speaks to just the power of like uniting around a shared sense of purpose and just that like regardless of backgrounds, ideologies, culture, beliefs, right? There are just like some core tenets of what it is to be human, which is to want to be seen, to want to be treated with respect, to want to join and collaborate with others. These transcend any of these um, identities or labels. I just wanted to riff on that, Liz, because you're so right. One of the questions we get a lot um, is what's different, right? So what, what do people in Argentina want that's different than what people in Italy want? Or what do people in healthcare want that's different than what people in technology want? And at the end, this is exactly what you said. It's like, well, people want to trust who they work for. They want to pride in what they do and they want to enjoy the people they work with. Like it's a human need. Um, and really, as you kind of keep that human sense and have that empathy and understanding to say, oh, I'm working with humans. Um, and if I tend to that, then things will get better. It, it's really powerful. It's less mysterious than I think sometimes we we feel. I was also say it's, it's a great time right now to rally around a strong purpose. And so, you know, these organizations were created for a purpose to provide something to uh, customers or stakeholders. And can you figure out how to really recast what that purpose is and really rally around that purpose. Uh, It's a great way to unite people as well. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to think about in the context of the great resignation, because I know that a lot of what the research has shown is that, you know, there's a sort of great crisis of purpose going on amidst the workforce, right? And people are like, what do I actually want to be doing with my time? And who do I actually want to be giving my time and my efforts to? Um, And, you know, I know a lot of companies have come in and you know, added a lot of perks and different financial incentives, right? But there's this whole other dimension, I think, that people are crying out for, which is these human aspects that we're talking about, a united sense of purpose, sense of trust, sense of pride, a sense of camaraderie. Um, when you're looking at these organizations that are they're doing really well, particularly in this for all model, 
I'm curious, is there a profile of a for all leader? What does a for all leader look like? How do these for all leaders show up? And you've, you talked about it a little bit with Cisco, but I'm wondering if there's anything else to add there. I think it's been a great opportunity to witness for all leadership over the last year and a half, because it feels like we were put in a place where an unknown, like this liminal space. And so how did leaders show up? And it's almost like you have hubris and you have humility. And I think these leaders were not coming from a place of knowing it all because you could know it all during this time, but being very humble and actually engaging people in a way to get better. There was also less of a self-focus, more of a focus on others. So you move from self-focus to empathy. And I think a lot of these leaders were able to demonstrate a great sense of empathy over the year and a half. I don't think empathy is there's any short supply of that. I think it's more about the more I spend time with people on the front line, the more I experience what their world is like. And we were almost forced to do that during the pandemic. So I feel like that those are things that are really aligned with for all leadership. Uh, not someone who knows it all, but someone who actually engages other people. Uh, not someone who has a focus on themselves, but actually is focusing on others and how to make things better for others. This leader is also less about centralized decision-making, but more like centralized coordination of people, making sure that people are connecting in a way that they can get things done. To me, that's what a for-all leader looks like and, and shows up. And I think uh, Marcus has done a lot of great research on really defining the characteristics of a for-all leader. But if I think about over the last year and a half, that's how I've seen leaders show up in these companies. Yeah, and that, I mean, you captured it so well, Tony. That's when we talked about for all leaders, we, our original research looked at what pe experiences people are having with their leaders and there's sort of a spectrum of experiences people can have. Um, some of them are very familiar to people who have ever worked anywhere. Um, if you've ever watched The Office and cringe at what Michael Scott does, you know what some of those experiences are on that spectrum. Um, there's, you know, some of the, better experiences where you see a leader who's a really good leader, who's really good at setting a vision, who's almost a, a heroic figure who kind of sets the direction and leads people through the wall and to get to the other side. That's a great leader too. For all leader was something that we started to see emerge where people were saying, you know, hey, this leader actually gets me. This leader helps coach me to be better. I'm inspired to work for this purpose, not for this person, if that distinction makes sense. So uh, and, you know, when you distill it down, the thing that was really different about these leaders from others was what Tony said, you know, this, this sense of humility, empathy, curiosity, a desire to connect. Um, those traits were what really drove for all leaders. Um, and, you know, what we also found was that these for all leaders, people love working for them. They have a higher level of retention, inspiration. Um, and you're also more likely to find these leaders at certified great workplaces. So, um, you know, another advantage these companies have figured out. Uh, and it really is, uh, I, I think, you know, one of the shifts we're seeing and what the pandemic has shown is like, you need these types of leaders. Um, you know, if you think about hybrid work or flexible work um, or even life before Zoom, leaders had a certain amount of control and influence because people came to a location. You could watch, you could see what's happening and there's this informal control that a leader would feel that they have. Once everybody went to Zoom, it was really stressful for leaders as leaders to like think, well, are employees working or not? Um, and you have to really understand as a leader, like, oh, I don't actually have a power of control. The person might jump through the door behind them. A kid might pop onto screen. Uh, they might have to you know, shift internet. Um, and so leaders really needed to be better at understanding all of this 
I'm curious to talk a little bit about um, diversity washing, particularly as DEI work um, has come front and center over the past year and a half, two years. Uh, there's been a little bit of a risk, right? Um, and I think a lot has been written about this, like what are we saying we're doing and what are we actually doing? And I think, you, you know, you talked about this really well, like DE is the numbers and IB is the mindset, right? And so sometimes we can show numbers, but the mindset isn't necessarily there. Um, so how do you help set people up, set organizations up to meet their goals around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? Yeah. It's a great question. I think it, everything starts with like the shared aspiration that, you know, you really, if that's not in place, everything else can kind of fall flat. And I think it's also kind of a framework of how to look at this. It is a complex issue. Uh, there are a lot of puzzle pieces that are involved in this. Uh, it's easy to think in terms of a magic bullet, something that's going to make things better. So what we have to make sure that clients aren't the trap they're not falling into is really seeing how maybe working on one piece of the puzzle is going to extrapolate to having this broad impact on everything. There's so many pieces at once that you need to work on. And so if you have an ERG in place, an employee resource group, know that that's not the magic bullet, but there are certain things that have to be wrapped around the employee resource group to make sure that it's effective. So there's so many pieces. And I think that's the mindset that really helps people understand how complex this issue is and how much is involved and how long it can take to get the impact that you really want. So that, that, that's the biggest piece. And underneath that, they're all sort of uh, actionable items or, or issues or initiatives that you can take to sort of build out a, a, a nice strategy, but it starts there. I'd love Marcus to hear what your thoughts are as far as the framework that needs to be there. Yeah, I, to your point, Tony, I don't see a magic bullet. One of the things I think, though, is um, the phrase that keeps coming is, is sort of like keep going. Uh, that you know, a lot of organizations uh, with good intent and good impact, you know, have put out statements about supporting DEIB and their commitment to it. Um, and that's wonderful and it feels great. And that's not enough. Uh, you have to keep taking action. And what happens, I think, for many organizations is when you get to that taking action, um, you start to run into some of that those experiences where people start to come up internally within your company and say, hey, this is a zero-sum game. I'm losing out. If you're focusing over there, what about my needs? Um, and it becomes, as a leader, uncomfortable, um, difficult. But that's the kind of point where if you're feeling that discomfort, or if you're feeling that challenge, as a leader, that probably means you're doing it right. Uh, you're in the right space. Um, and rather than going back, you need to say, how can I learn? What can I do better? What can we do better? And how can we keep improving? Um, so I think for many organizations, I, I feel like that's one of the big barriers is that initial feel good moment of saying we're doing the right thing and then running into the difficulty of doing the right thing. Um, they, they get stuck or stop and it's really keep going. There's not a magic bullet, but you can keep going and keep getting better. There, there is a, it is something people can figure out. I think for leaders is also not seeing things readily, but knowing mm -hmm. where to look for things. So it's mm -hmm. almost like some things may go unnoticed. And as a leader, you have to know where to look for things in the system versus like seeing it readily. And uh, it's kind of a skill that needs to be developed. Yeah. And it reminds me, Tony, that in our data consistently, um, white male executives, not to put anybody on the spot, but white male executives um, are five to eight times more likely to think 
people are experiencing the workplace as fair than the people themselves. Um, particularly when you start to look at people who uh, identify as Black employees, LGBTQ employees, or female or, or non-binary employees, anybody who's in one of those marginalized groups or identifies as part of that, white male executives are typically unaware that's happening. There's just this consistent sense of, of blinders. Um, and so that need for curiosity is so important, um, just because, uh, as Tony said, you're probably missing something. Um, so being really curious and intentional is, is really critical. To build off of that, you can have scores where everyone is saying this is a great place to work, you know, by far. This is a great place to work. Yet certain populations say that the culture isn't fair, promotions aren't fair, you know, this whole fairness issue. So how can you say it's a great place to work when you have feelings that you're working in an environment that's not fair? Are you settling and just feeling like there's no possibility that things are going to be different? So. If you look at the top line, everything looks great, but you have to, as Marcus mentioned, be very curious and dig a little bit deeper. I'm wondering if there's like a stage of emotions that you see leaders go through, for example, when you present them with data and they're coming in thinking, this is a great place to work. Everything's really fair, right? And then it's like right there in the data showing that there's an entire population or multiple populations that are in agreement with that. I'm, I'm curious what is the initial response that you see from a leader? And then, then how does their kind of emotional psychological journey unfold? Yeah, I think uh, the natural reaction is disappointment. Uh, you know, I've put a lot of work into building this great organization. You're telling me that some people aren't experiencing it the way that I would want to. Most companies that we work with, I would say that it's a unique population because these people believe in a great place to work. That's part of who they are and they're trying to build it. There's a whole different world out there that isn't like that. And so we're fortunate to be able to work primarily with those organizations. So I think there's kind of a period of letdown, disappointment, but uh, it doesn't last very long. These companies are curious and they wanna make things better. So they stay open and wanting to hear how to move from where they are to where they need to go. Uh, it's almost like, <laughs> I'm not a lifeguard, but I, I have a, a sister-in-law who was a lifeguard. And uh, she told me that to rescue people when they're like kicking and screaming in the water, you almost have to push them into the water and sort of make them lifeless so that you can get them out. So it's taking them deeper into the data, deep in it, into what's happening and then sort of calm down and you can move beyond that. We drown you with data. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good analogy. There is just a, as a leader, getting that data and feedback is so difficult. And I so empathize with what they go through is, you know, because in our job, we're asking 10,000 people what they think about you. <laughs> I've never been in that position, but that's a lot of pressure and a lot of feedback to get back. Um, and so in the moment, it's just, it's, you know, there's just courage in asking and courage in listening to hear the feedback. Uh, as Tony said, you know, once you get past that and you can kind of calm yourself and get to the point of like, okay, what do we do next? That's the, the mark of these leaders. It's just really impressive. Um, Cause it's easy to start to, you know, say, well, that's not us or that's unique to our industry. That's normal. And kind of getting caught up and rationalizing it away, this gap in the data. Um, but the best leaders are the ones who say, I'm not going to settle for that. I want to keep getting better. I want to be great for all. Yeah. It's almost like the reaction to the data tells you uh, as much of the story as the data itself. And so you're right. How people react to the data is uh, a good sign. 
you know, in my experience, industry doesn't have much bearing on how companies perform in terms of being a great place to work. But I'm wondering if there are any industry specific trends um, that feel worth sharing. Industry trends right now are, you know, the, like where my head goes is a lot around dealing with the reality of hybrid um, and less so with DEIB. Um, I'll just say it out, but like with hybrid, um, what's happening is a lot of some industries, professional services, financial and insurance, these industries are are figuring out there's a new world of, of hybrid work where we have to empower leaders to be able to better do this. We're not going back to the old way because the old way is gone now. People want flexibility. They want to be able to not commute. They want to be able to come into the office to connect with people, but not to do their work. They're figuring these things out. Um, some industries are now realizing retail and hospitality and even healthcare that that is also true for them in a way um, and that they've got to actually adapt because there's now this great pressure to support flexible workplaces, to support um, an idea of flexibility that's appropriate for their industry because people are, if they don't have it, they're now going to get on to LinkedIn, they're going to get on to ZipRecruiter and they're going to find somewhere else um, to work. And that's partly what's driving the great resignation. Um, I think in a similar vein, DEIB is showing up um, and, and that companies, and we see we did some research on what Gen Z, this emerging workforce um, is saying and looking for, and it's very strong that they're looking for companies that take a stand and live up to that stand. And this has been something that's true for every generation. So I don't want to say Gen Z is the first one to ever want purpose. They're not. Um, that's been true from the greatest generation, the baby boomers and on, probably even before that. But Gen Z is definitely saying, hey, if our company is not living up to making a statement on uh, you know, how they want society to look, how they want to make things equitable for their communities, um, you're going to start to see people leave as well, because that sense of purpose uh, is just something our data keeps showing over and over again that people want to be associated with and that they need to be attached to to, to stay with their employers. Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly, this idea of DEIB and ESGs that's where people are expecting companies to show a sense of purpose and a sense of impact. Yeah. I I feel this great sense of like, Hey, we need to be in alignment. Like I need to know that the organization where I'm giving up my time and talent is actually addressing the big Mm -hmm. issues that are happening in the world right now. Um, I just Mm -hmm. have two more questions. One is, um, we just wrapped up a series on reimagining capitalism where we spoke with um, co-op owners. And I know that a couple companies on the list have been employee owned. And I'm just wondering if there's anything to say about the relationship between uh, giving employees ownership in the company and DEIB, or if there's any distinct data or connection there. I'm not aware of any specific data on that question. Um, You know, when we've looked at ownership, we do see some not specific to DEIB, we see some differences with um, amongst publicly held companies and how they're structured with shareholders and whether they have activist shareholders, uh, but it's not, which impacts whether or not people have those experiences of trust, purpose, and camaraderie. Um, But that's not specific to DEIB. Um, I would imagine, and this is just pure theory, is that, you know, we've seen that ownership structure amongst private companies generally there's not, again, much difference. Um, and so operating a co-op versus a, a, you know, a privately held company is different entirely. Operations understand that, but there's still humans in both organizations. And those humans and those, the needs they have for trust, purpose, and community is 
everywhere. Um, and so the way you might go about that for a co-op versus a privately held company um, might look different. The practices, the specific ways you express that purpose might show up differently. The way you create community might show up differently. Um, but both types of organizations really need to pay attention to that. And I would say too, um, coming back to Gen Z, um, they are the most diverse workforce that we'll have in the United States. So whether you're a co-op or, or, or not, the people you're hiring in the next five to 10 years are going to be more diverse than you've seen, um, which is great. And it's going to mean you're going to need to shift how you approach this. The way you've designed your jobs and your organization might suit a certain type of person. Now you need to understand, well, actually, you've got to have a lot more flexibility, personalization, so you can create that sense of inclusion and belonging. I don't have any data on this, but my empirical knowledge would tell me that it's not, there's nothing different in those organizations. Same, similar challenges. I'd love to hear if there is a single question that you might leave our listeners with. And I wonder, it could be a question from any one of your surveys or a question that you ask companies on the culture audit, but is there a question that you could leave our listeners with that would um, just inspire some thinking around this? You know, one of the things that we've been working with, and, and I'll lead up to the question. So but the, is a small group of companies that's very committed um, to really changing their current state of DEIB, making systemic changes um, so that they can, three years from now, after the statements they've made, they, they come true. So I think for your listeners, I, I would take that spirit of you know, rather than saying, what have we ahead of us? Start asking, how can we look back and say, how far have we come? Um, what's going to make that true? Uh, because if you start thinking about that, it creates a lot more inspiration. And I, hopefully I've talked long enough that Tony's come up with a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my question is more philosophical, but I, I, would, I think my question would be, if the future is going to be totally different than the past. How good is the data and information that you've been relying on up to this point? So if you're not really actively trying to get more data, collect more data from your employees, you're, you're missing something. So that, that's, that's part of what I would leave with people um, because things are totally different. I, I think, what are we going back to? It's almost like there's nothing really to go back to. I think people have changed over the last year and a half. Companies have changed. Everything's changed. And so there's not a whole lot to go back to. So we have to be very conscious of realizing that we need to be very proactive in collecting data, getting a sense of how people are experiencing things today to make sure we make the right decisions. Thank you so much. Is there anything that I haven't asked or that you two want to add before we close? I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think... Uh, when we were in the office together, back in San Francisco, I was sitting in front of Marcus. I could just pivot my chair and gain from all of his knowledge. So it's great to be in conversation with you, Marcus. And no, I can't think of anything else. I think it's been a great conversation. Um, likewise, it's always good to talk with you, Tony, and talk with you, Liz. Uh, um, I'm thinking of pivoting back in the office. And I, I remember some of our earlier offices that Liz will nicely not talk about. Um, <laughs> but, 
but uh, it's really lots great. of character. Yeah, <laughs> lots. <of> thank you. <laughs> uh, it's great to be able to continue these conversations, and I, I hope um, you know these types of conversations. Your listeners out there have them themselves about what's happening for the organizations, and you know, three years from now, we we are having a new set of conversations about how far we've come. I can't wait for that. Thank you so much for being on the show. And um, more importantly, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so valuable. It's so important. And it's, um, I just think the impact of being able to see things through the employee perspective and through the data just really uh, gives us a real pulse on, on what's happening and gives us real information that we can work with. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. what Tony and Marcus shared about um, companies who did well on the for all dimension outperforming other organizations in, in times such as a recession, it really bumps up against this idea of leadership that it's lonely at the top, right? And I, I think I always have this question of, is it lonely because the way that power and hierarchy are structured within traditional organizations and does it actually have to be that lonely, right? And, and to see these organizations where employees from all across the organization, right, from all different backgrounds and all different ranks and roles are an active part of problem solving, I think it sort of immediately um, bumps up against this idea we have that to lead is to be entirely on one's own and to bear all of the responsibility I think there's another dimension at play here, and it's one that Vanessa Druscat uh, talked about very well from her research on teams and groups, which is belonging. Uh, when he says that it was the people who are usually on the margin of the organizations who, uh, when they said, I feel good about being here, that suggests that they belong, that they have this sense of belonging. And in Druscat's research, that showed that there would be a high-performing team. So when they say that there's more innovation, that there's more productivity, that they didn't flatline during the recession, uh, it may well come back to this sense that we're all in this together, we're comfortable together, we feel at home with each other, we belong. That's what I'm hearing here are these two different ways that a culture of inclusion and belonging uh, fosters success in a business and it, particularly in a difficult situation. If, if um, somebody who's a part of an organization feels like they belong there, they are bought in, they are a part of it, they'll give it their all. They'll want it to succeed. And then the other side of it is that uh, with more diverse viewpoints, it fills in the blind spots that we inevitably have, especially as uh, people in positions of power, there are automatic blind spots because they don't have to see so many of the things that others have to deal with every day. And so there's a lot of information that gets lost at the top. Uh, and it's very important for all perspectives to be heard. It's, it's the way that, that an organization becomes stronger. Yeah, I think part of what we're talking about is this um, trend that we've seen in organizational culture over the past couple decades where organizations, um, people relate to each other much like family members. And um, 
I think it's an interesting topic and probably something that we could do a whole series on, right? Which is, does this sense of family, whereas it might drive a sense of belonging, where and how does it potentially undercut diversity? For a long time, we use this language of um, culture fit, right? Is this person a right fit? And I know that as we've been looking at the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion and thinking more critically about these things, some of that language has changed to say culture add. Is this a person that adds something new to the culture? Um, Because culture fit, well, it sort of bolstered this sense of belonging or created this sense of, you know, we're all in it together. It also supported um, a certain homogeneity within the culture. I think the antidote to that homogeneity is diversity, that if you can have that family sense with a very diverse, different assembly of people, then you're going to uh, inoculate against that danger. It's really a mindset shift of appreciating other perspectives, appreciating the importance of, of multiple perspectives. And respecting multiple perspectives, not just appreciating. We sure do appreciate you listening to our podcast. To say thank you, we're offering 25% off our series of primers on the emotional intelligence competencies. It's called The Building Blocks of Emotional Intelligence. You can use the code FPP25 at checkout. That's FPP25. The Building Blocks series explains each EI competency in practical, actionable terms. You can order a set from keystepmedia.com shop and use the discount code FPP25. That's keystepmedia.com shop. Thanks. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Rhea, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guests, Tony Bond and Marcus Erb. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Driving Through Tunnels by Daniel Birch and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.